News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. This is Malik Wright from the House Party Podcast. I've marched with the protesters day and night through Harlem, on the West Side Highway, on Broadway, in Washington Square Park, in Union Square, in Herald Square, in Times Square, all the squares. I've seen people pepper sprayed, threatened, arrested by police. I've seen looting, fire started, shit thrown. But frankly, I've also seen passion and compassion, camaraderie, community, people looking out for each other and protecting each other on both sides. Frankly, it feels like a protest and a counter protest at times. But I think on spec, I can speak to this as a black man and as a native New Yorker growing up hearing about Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell and Abner Louima and Eric Garner. What I heard was that George Floyd's death and what feels like complete police impunity was the final straw. Black people, particularly young folk, have been traumatized and violated by a whole host of factors, especially recently, that just built up into the perfect storm at this moment. The steady pace of unarmed black people being murdered by law enforcement figures like Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. The lack of any real prosecution or consequences ever without some kind of social media noise having to be made. The Central Park Karens of the world that use the police as their personal state-sponsored execution force. Mass unemployment, the pandemic, hopelessness, Trump, and, and frankly, fucking boredom. I think this has all led to rage which leads to lashing out to just be seen and heard. I think for many, it's cathartic. It's people coming together, crying out collectively in anguish for justice and for equity. And, 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 it, and it ain't a pretty cry. It's from the gut. It's a visceral, emotional wail. It's from the ancestors. It's generational. And frankly, it's working. It's getting attention. It's getting wall-to-wall coverage because people have politely asked for change They've voted for change, marched for change, been promised change, and yet nothing ever changes. Black people are still being killed and mistreated, and it's been like 400 years now. Yet, I don't know how this changes anything, but it would be a damn shame if our leaders didn't use this opportunity to gather the political will and come together with movement voices to affect some real effective reforms. Until then, this is going to be the state of affairs and no curfew or martial law or military incursion is going to end it. America is broken and it needs to get fixed. And I hope this helps us move forward. FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel of the Daily Beast and the Daily News here in Brooklyn with me and outside the city at the moment are Christina Greer of Fordham University on the Amsterdam News. Hello. Hello. And Alex Lynn of Racket Media and so much else. How are you doing? Pretty good outside the city and having a little bit of journalistic FOMO, but doing what I can from out here. Well, it's been popping off here, unfortunately. We're recording at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. Last night, there were about 700 arrests as a curfew happened in New York for, I think, the first time since World War II. That was set weirdly for 11 p.m. By 7 p.m., after a day of continued, powerful, passionate protesting about profound injustices 
things started to transition in parts of Manhattan and little parts of Brooklyn into a second night of looting, robbing, violence, and chaos with a uh, really underwhelming NYPD response, especially compared to the huge response we've seen to some of the protests. A few individual officers have said they feel like they're at war with the mayor and they don't want to risk their lives defending property. The mayor said this morning that the response was great, that the reporters who were asking about this saw their own realities, but not what was really happening. The governor then said this was a failure by the mayor and the NYPD and mused about his power to remove the mayor and also talked about his willingness to bring in the National Guard under his command. President Trump is talking about bringing in the National Guard under his command to uh, states that aren't being brutal enough with protesters. And he's not really distinguishing between protesters and rioters and violent actors at all. And my view right now is very grim, that a significant righteous moment that's brought people out to the streets in the middle of this pandemic, after New York finally saw its way past that curve, is in danger of being hijacked by images of disruption and stores being looted and fires and very scary street scenes. And there's a lot at stake if that isn't brought under some control uh, at this politically fraught time and, of course, right before the summer of a presidential election. So this week, Harry and I spoke to my state senator, Zellner Myrie, about not just the protests in New York City, but some of the larger questions that Albany will have to answer and also how he feels about the mayor handling the NYPD and how we move forward with the processes of justice and also peace. Let's take a listen. Thank you, Senator. So how are you? Yeah, it's been a, a, a weird couple of days. And there's a level of dissociation required to not be in a full state of rage and sadness and hopelessness. But I think it's you know been a time where I have to use the pain and the trauma uh, from the experience and what we've been seeing to hopefully keep the focus on why we've taken to the streets and why we've been out there. So uh, it's been it's been tough. Yeah. I have to I can't I can't say that I'm that I'm uh, OK, uh, but we're doing, I think, what is necessary in order to get some some changes. Or in slightly unorthodox time. So I started this interview in a slightly unorthodox way. We're here at FAQ NYC on June 2nd. I'm in Delaware. My co-host Harry Siegel is in Brooklyn. And we're speaking to our state senator, Zellner Myrie. I really just wanted you on the podcast just to, A, check in with you. I think many of our podcast listeners have probably seen the visual of you from Barclays on Friday at the demonstration that went from peaceful to chaotic pretty quickly, it seemed. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what was happening on the ground then and, and what you've seen on the ground since then? Yeah, so, you know, I went down to the Barclays Center, had my colleague, Assemblymember Diana Richardson, with me, really to keep the peace, but also in solidarity. I'm a Black man in this country. I feel all of the rage and the passion and sadness that most of us have been feeling at this time. And so I went down because I know how raw those emotions are, but also because I have relationships with the law enforcement. I thought it was important for me to be there to liaise in the event that things escalated. 
and I purposely wore a bright neon green shirt with my name on the back to prevent things from escalating, to tell folks, look, I'm an elected official and I'm here for us to, to forcefully protest, but to do so in a way where no one is brutalized. So when we were in the crowd, there were orders for us to back up and uh, we were compliant with those. We started to move back as instructed. And then there was a sudden surge. I don't know if people have seen some of these videos where there is a line of officers and things are relatively calm until they move forward in an aggressive fashion to move people back. And that's exactly what happened to me. And so I'm now getting hit in my back because I'm walking away and I also have my back to show who I am. I'm walking away and I'm getting hit in my legs and in my back with a bicycle. These are multiple officers who have weaponized their bicycles to move us back. And I'm moving back and I'm getting pushed and I'm getting shoved by an untold number of officers and things are heating up, you know, and I'm trying to protect folks from getting hit. And as I turn around to say, we're listening, we're doing what you're asking us to do. I was pepper sprayed. And then I heard someone yell, cuff them, cuff them. Uh, and then I had multiple officers force my hands behind my back and put me in the zip ties. Now, I have never been under arrest in my life. I've never been pepper sprayed in my life. And the first time that both of those things happened to me is as a state senator going to a protest against police brutality. So that's why this has been a really difficult time for me, but I think an important time and important for me to get the message out because we have, I think, cast judgment on many of the protesters and say, well, you should just listen and you should just do things the right way. Well, I did everything the right way. And I have all the credentials that you would want someone to have to do things the right way. And I still fell victim. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what a lot of folks are feeling, myself included, where it's just like, you know, our class won't protect us, our degrees won't protect us. Right. You know, that I think that was part of my um, frustration with how Christian Cooper was being framed in his, his interaction right. with Amy Cooper, where, you know, folks were like, well, he went to Harvard and he was on the board of the Audubon Society. I was like, well, if he had on a do-rag and a gold tooth and an undershirt, right. he still would have been well within his right to tell her to put her dog on a leash. I mean, so it, these degrees and this politics of respectability falls flat. Yep. I want to bring in my co-host, Harry Siegel, reporting from Brooklyn. And, and again, Senator, I just want to thank you for joining us because I know you're incredibly busy trying to keep a, the peace in Brooklyn, but also thinking about a path forward. So, um, Harry, you there? I am. Senator, I was just listening to the mayor, who sounds profoundly frustrated this morning and has been lashing out at the press and also insisting that the NYPD has matters in hand, both in terms of how they're handling peaceful protesters and in terms of how they're handling the kids mostly who've been out robbing in Manhattan and a few parts of Brooklyn in big groups over the last couple of nights. He says he doesn't want the National Guard to come in, that the NYPD is and can handle this. And he says that he wants 
authentic leaders in the community to step forward and to uh, take charge. I'm just interested in your read in how the mayor is doing and how these two things, these very large, very peaceful protests, and then this criminal activity at night, how those reweighed. It seems like the NYPD has put tremendous resources into the uh, protests and doesn't quite seem to have a handle on these robberies and street life in Manhattan in particular at the moment. Thanks, Harry. You know, there's a, a level of dissonance here because for those of us who are involved in this work, and if you follow just policing generally, there are the police buzzwords that people roll out when it comes to how to tamp down crime. And we hear things like precision policing, or we hear community policing or neighborhood policing. Uh, but it's interesting that we are incapable of precisely protecting institutions that we know will be subject to criminal activity. But when it comes to peaceful protesters, we are incapable of exercising restraint. I mean, in one of the interactions that I had with law enforcement on Friday, there was an officer that this is the strategic response group, the SRGs. These are not cops from our neighborhoods. The guy squared up, like ready to fight. Not de-escalate, but like ready to go blow for blow, even though that's not what we were doing at all. And so I think what, what people are seeing in the news and what people are seeing on the ground, hearing that things are under control leaves much to be desired, even though most of the interactions that are happening happen without consequence. And there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have been able to march and who haven't been beaten or brutalized by police officers. And to the extent that we can say the absence of brutality is control, uh, then I certainly think that there is merit to that. But we are at the brink and at a fork in the road between community and chaos. And talk about no justice, no peace. Everyone is talking about the no peace. What about the justice? That's why we're marching. That's why we're out there. So don't talk to me about why there isn't peace and let, you know, the righteous indignation about the violence and there being no peace. And you have not at all addressed the justice. That is what we want our leaders to do. Address the justice part of this equation and then the unrest will tamper down. Well, as a leader, just tell us a little about what you're doing right now on the justice side of the equation as a lawmaker. <laughs> So we have a unique opportunity in the legislature. The nation's conscience is shocked. They have seen that police brutality has continued unabated. And I think unlike any moment that we've had, certainly in this legislative session, we now have an opportunity to put forth police accountability measures that will start to restore trust in the system. And so there are a number of provisions of the law, uh, not the least of which is 50A, that protects and shields police misconduct that I think we need to repeal. I think we need to remove disciplinary hearings from the jurisdiction of a judge who's on the NYPD payroll, make that a neutral judge, the same judges that conduct the proceedings for corrections officers and every other city agency. I think that we need to start tracking racial profiling the courts are not required to keep the demographic data 
for misdemeanors and other charges. We need to change that. And I think we need to have serious conversations about a special prosecutor in the event of misconduct leading to someone's death, making that office permanent. Right now it's temporary and giving it more power. And so I think we have a number of things that we can tackle within the next week or two that will start to show the public that we're being responsive and that we hear what they're saying. Senator, how confident are you that some of this proposed legislation will actually make it through? Because you've got some conservative Democratic colleagues, you've got some Republican colleagues who are much more concerned with the keeping of the peace as opposed to the justice part of the equation. And we've also seen the governor have rhetoric at this particular moment that lots of people across the country see him as this progressive stalwart. But we know that when it comes time to work with people within his own party, he's been pretty obstinate. So what do you think the chances are of some of this legislation actually getting through and becoming substantive law? Yeah, Dr. Gray, the the legislative process is certainly not fast enough as a general matter. And I think that when it comes to the proposals that I just mentioned, many of which have been introduced uh, for a couple of years now, you know, it, it will be subject to much debate and it's unclear whether we will get them in, in the current form that they are now uh, after they have gone through the legislative process. But I want to say that then this speaks to what we were talking about earlier with respectability politics. It is one thing to talk about a bill in the abstract for a more conservative colleague to hear me say this is something that means a lot to my community. And it is another thing entirely for them to see me brutalized and for them to now say, well, if it could happen to Zelnor, then it could happen to anyone. And I think that that is what this moment has provided, that it will allow for folks who may not have been inclined to support to see that this is actually something that means a lot to our community and that the legislation is necessary to begin to restore trust. Hmm. I think the trust piece is a really important conversation because I don't know how that begins. And I think that a lot of New Yorkers, unfortunately, have lost trust in the mayor and they've definitely lost trust in the NYPD. I mean, trying to figure out a path forward What does that look like for electeds building and maintaining trust within their various constituencies? It's tough. We, you know, we've had to work with, you know, I work with my local precincts all the time. I think that it, it is unwise for anyone not to do that. And I know many of the commanding officers of the precincts. I know the community affairs officers, people who want to do the right thing people who the community knows, you know, they know these folks. Um, But in order for us, after what is happening now, and and, and I don't even know ultimately where this is going to lead, I think that it is really important for there to be honest conversations. And I think people are afraid of, of saying certain things to not offend certain sensibilities. But I think if we do not have that honest conversation and we do not put some action behind it, then the trust will continue to be eroded. So speaking of that honest conversation, the mayor at the moment, or moments ago, said again that the reporters asking about the NYPD just letting looting happening were characterizing things in their own view, and that didn't correspond to reality. The governor, minutes after that, as the oppressors were overlapping, said, uh, 
The police in New York City were not effective at doing their job last night, period. I'd be interested in your perspective on that. And then broadening out from there, if that urban disorder that's happening now impacts the math for reform legislatively, politically or otherwise, or, or if this is just a passing thing in your view. Yeah, that's a great question, Harry. And to the first part, there it is clear that things were disorderly last night. And I think it actually proves the point of many of us who have said that policing is not the answer. They doubled the amount of officers that they had on the streets last night. And we still saw the looting that preceded the request for more officers. And so clearly there is a disconnect between the top and what's happening on the ground. And it's not the solution to always just throw more officers into a volatile situation. And to your second point, this has been something that I've grappled with because it is true that the reporting has to reflect the looting and the breaking into businesses and institutions. But the message of the why and why we have taken to the streets, I think, has to remain as a foreign. And as, as it pertains to legislation, I think we have to continue to let folks know that the reason that all of this unrest is happening is because we haven't seen consequences in the past. And I would remind folks who like to sanitize our history, the protests in the 60s, and you know, I know we have more of an expert in Dr. Greer on this, the protests in the 60s were disapproved by the majority of Americans. And they said that it would hurt the cause. They disapproved of the Freedom Riders. They disapproved of the March on Washington. I think the Gallup poll said that 60% of Americans held an unfavorable view of those things or opposed them. Uh, and now we look back and we say they did the right thing and it led to policy changes because it made people uncomfortable. And I think we are in a similar moment right now. We may not approve of all of the mediums of protest and how they're doing it and who's doing it, uh, but it is my hope that we have been disrupted enough. The status quo has been shaken enough that we will be motivated to act. So, Senator, bring it a little more local. And I know that you're not part of the city council, but you and your colleagues help make policy that the state of New York has to follow. And obviously you all work closely with some of your city council colleagues. What do you think needs to be done with real training of the NYPD? We've seen... We've seen positive results in places like Camden and even places like Flint, Michigan, where there's been real anti-bias training, not these kind of, you know, nonsensical diversity sessions where even the teacher doesn't want to be there. We've seen real community relation building. And so there there has to be some, some healing that needs to be done once the unrest settles. But what do you think the NYPD really needs to do? to make sure that they can build trust with New Yorkers and not just black New Yorkers and Latinx New Yorkers. Now, I think they've broken the trust of a lot of white New Yorkers as well, who who didn't have any interaction with them before these uprisings. Uh, What has to happen on a real substantive level? So I think that the training is, is, is one aspect. And to your point, this can't be three PowerPoint slides uh, about how to de-escalate a situation. I think there has to be anti-racist training that people have to confront 
the structural and implicit racism that they are a part of. I think until that happens, there's just going to be botch checking. And then once you get into a volatile situation or once you're under duress, you were just going to be leaning on your instincts. And so I think that has to be part of the training. But absent consequences for misconduct, it won't matter. If you know that you can still use excessive force and that's not reported or it will never be used in litigation against you or that it won't have any professional consequences for you, you're going to continue to do that. And so until there is a structure in place, and yes, there is a responsibility for us on the state level to change some of the laws, but there can be administrative changes right now. The Office of Inspector General for the NYPD has made many recommendations to the New York Police Department that they have flat out refused to do. One of those things, reporting the use of force, the excessive use of force by demographics, who was the victim? They, they have outright refused to do that. And so there is an opportunity. We have a whole office of inspector general that is ready and has recommended changes that I think could be immediately adopted that would go a long way in building trust with the community. Hmm. So, Senator, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of neighborhoods across the city uh, having incredible unrest, during the day and especially in the evening, you've been a champion of trying to make sure communities fill out the census. Can you give us a little update as to where we are as New York City residents and what you're doing to ensure that in the midst of all of this, we still make sure we're counted? That's right. So we are still lagging behind the nation. Uh, We have made a couple of percentage point increases. I think the nation is up to 60 percent. The state Overall, I think is hovering around 52%. And here in uh, central Brooklyn and in the city, that, that number is, is anywhere between 48% and 50% completion. So I think we still have a lot more to go. I have been doing robocalls. And so uh, many of my constituents have been getting phone calls from me, reminding them to fill out their census. I did a whole robocall in Spanish, which is a um, which is a struggle for me, but I thought it was important to get out. We have um, translations in Haitian Creole and Mandarin. So we've been really trying to get the word out. I have another census mailer going out to the entire district in the coming weeks. And I have also been making pleas with the leadership in the legislature um, as the census has moved its deadlines the implications for redistricting will uh, will be impacted. And so I am trying to make sure that we're moving forward on that front as well. And so in every single town hall that I've had, I think I've held about 10 virtual town halls. I have started it and ended with reminding folks to go to my2020census.gov to fill out their census if they have not. Can you repeat that for our listeners? That's right. So it's my2020census.gov. Please go fill it out if you have not already and, you know, letting folks know that it is important. These two of these things, the pandemic and sort of the civil unrest, we don't have the political representation to lead us through the unrest. Uh, We're going to continue to see the same. And with the pandemic, we have been, unfortunately, at the losing end of the resources for our hospitals. We got to be counted as well. So I'm, I'm continuing to push even in the midst of all this chaos. 
Senator, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I know that you're incredibly busy. Um, Harry and I have seen you on various programs trying to make sense of this moment and keep uh, New Yorkers informed. So I really, truly appreciate you joining us on FAQ NYC this week. Thank you for having me. I'll always make time for you guys and really appreciate you getting the message out and talking to New Yorkers about what matters. Okay, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Stay safe. This week, we asked local news reporters from around the city to share a few thoughts about what it's like to be covering these protests in New York today. Lloyd Mitchell. Covering the protest has been a pretty interesting experience in the fact that as a journalist, I'm on one side and as a, as someone who respects what police officers do and know what police officers do day in, day out, I feel conflicted. I just wish we had more solutions. I wish people allowed us to tell each side of the story through what we're seeing out on the street and tell it with dignity and respect. Hi, my name is Nolan Hicks. I'm a reporter for The Post. And every day of the last week has been an emotional gut punch. There are thousands upon thousands of people who have taken to the streets here in Brooklyn because they're furious at a system that they don't believe respects them and that they don't think is delivering for them and uh, providing them a a fair and equal shot at life. And... um, You know, I really don't know what else to say. It's been an extraordinarily long week on top of an extraordinarily long three months. This is Noah Horowitz, formerly of DNA Info, uh, now independent freelance. I covered the protest on Monday night, uh, most just really just tweeting about it, live tweeting the protest. Uh, I wasn't on assignment, but I thought it was important for there to be eyes on the ground. Um, I covered the Black Lives Matter marches in the summer and fall of 2014 for the Brooklyn paper. And um, this is easily the largest and most sustained movement since then. In some ways, it reminds me of 2014. Illegal protests organized on the fly and marching throughout the city without a predetermined destination. Uh, But one thing that struck me last night, on Monday night, was how much more experienced a lot of the protesters appeared. Like, they've had time to learn, time to practice, and they really know what they're doing. Um, When the march would become a bit stretched out, they'd stop to let it mass up again. When there was a turn, they knew how to block traffic and guide the march left or right. They just seemed, you know, even though most of it was not um, formally organized and had no formal leaders, people at the front of the march knew how to steer it, knew how to keep it going. The key difference, however, is that um, police have responded with far more aggression this time around, and protesters have responded with far more property destruction and direct confrontation with police than I ever saw in 2014. More uh, vandalism, more pepper spray. Um, It's just a totally different ballgame. 
Um, Monday night, however, was was quite peaceful. Unlike the previous nights when violence broke out, it was very calm in Brooklyn, uh, very festive almost. Um, I'm sure that there was some decision made by the NYPD to be less confrontational, uh, but I wasn't privy to that, obviously. Um, I was only privy to what I saw from the protesters. And from what I saw, protest organizers and volunteer leaders were also trying to avoid confrontation. Early on, when an NYPD van became enveloped by the march, I saw protesters standing in front of it, partially to block it from moving forward, but also presumably to protect it from anyone trying to vandalize it or provoke a confrontation. Uh, when the march passed by the 77 Precinct Station House on Utica Avenue in Brooklyn at about 10.30 p.m., uh, still several thousand strong, many protesters stopped to chant at the riot cops stationed outside. But a number of protesters uh, were really persistent in keeping the crowd moving, and I'm sure that that helped prevent any kind of violent confrontation between police and protesters. Um, so, you know, while while we've seen more violence than really in in recent memory, um, I also saw last night that there was a lot of people who who knew what they were doing, both in terms of de-escalation and in terms of keeping the march together in a way that would prevent it from being more vulnerable to confrontation by police. This is Ben Frackenberg with The City. Um, It's felt, honestly, a bit exhausting and numbing to have covered the Black Lives Matter protests now for more than five years and to see how little's changed nationally. Um, But at the same time, you know, I continue to feel drawn and and feels important to get out and cover um, the protests uh, to document what's going on and especially through photography, um, to shed a light on what's happening in the streets and, and to allow other Americans to connect with it um, in a real emotional, uh, visceral way. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is brought to you by Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. We normally tape at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, but until the quarantine is done, we're reporting from the great states of New York and Delaware. We want to give a special thank you to our guest this week, State Senator Zellner Myrie of Brooklyn. As always, Alex Brooklyn is our executive producer, and Adam Kamara mixed and mastered this episode. Thanks for tuning in and continue to be safe. Harry, you have anything else? Uh oh. Do we still have Harry? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, okay. I had to mute for a second. Uh, Adam, this will be the point where you edit shit out. Yeah, I've got it. I've got I've I've got it on my timestamp.